You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash twofertea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Andrew Curran. Um, he is the author of three books, The Anatomy of Blackness, Science and Slavery in an Era of Enlightenment, Diderot and the Art of Thinking Freely, and most recently, an, um, an edited collection with Henry Louis Gates Jr. called Who's Black and Why? A Hidden Chapter from the 18th Century Invention of Race. Um, and uh, Andy teaches at Wesleyan University. And I would, um, Andy has already, this is your second appearance on the podcast. Um, we previously talked about his book, Diderot and the Art of Thinking Freely, and it was actually one of my favorite, uh, probably still my favorite podcast interview I've done. Um, of all the 220 something episodes of this podcast. I think that's my personal favorite because I absolutely loved talking about uh, Diderot and Enlightenment literature. So I will put a link to that in the show notes. But today's topic is a little bit more somber because we're going to talk about um, race, racism, slavery, and conceptions of blackness during the French Enlightenment period. Uh, so we're going to be looking at both books, um, The Anatomy of Blackness, which is the kind of critical exploration of the topic, um, and Who's Black and Why, which is uh, really a historical document, an anthology of 18th century writings with a very substantial um, introductory essay um, and, so, and some small um, little introductory uh, pieces scattered throughout um, the book. So um, it's it's a curated and explicated collection. Um, so first of all, welcome, Andy. Hello, Iona. It's great to talk to you again. And I'm honored that you uh, had so much fun last time. I had a lot of fun talking with you too about Diderot. This is, in fact, totally, you're totally right. This is a, a more sombic, somber topic. <laughs> and uh, maybe we could begin um, by uh, if you could begin, Andy, by reading for us a passage from um, the introduction uh, to what's who's black and why. Sure. And I should uh, preface this by saying that uh, the whole collection and along with the introduction that I'm about to read or parts of the introduction uh, were done both by me and by Henry Louis Gates Jr. at Harvard, my esteemed and very famous colleague who uh, was the driving force behind this project, at least initially, and that we both really collaborated on it. So I'm going to read a couple uh, paragraphs, and you can tell me when to stop, uh, from the introduction regarding 
this uh, very curious contest, which was uh, proposed by the Bordeaux Academy of Sciences in 1739. So the introduction is subtitled the 1741 contest on the, quote, degeneration, unquote, of black skin and hair. All right. Louis XIV, King of France, signed the Lettre Patente that formally established Bordeaux's Academy of Sciences in 1712, much like the other French scientific academies that came into existence during the 17th and 18th centuries, all of which were abolished during the French Revolution. The Bordeaux Academy functioned as an exclusive and high-minded social club whose culture was one of intellectual inquiry, exchange, and public edification. To a large degree, provincial academies such as Bordeaux's were created in response to the continent's more conservative universities. Whereas the primary purpose of the University of Bordeaux was to educate the country's priests, doctors, and lawyers, handing down scripturally compatible truths while doing so, the Bordeaux Academy saw itself as far more enlightened and humanistic. Its stated objective was advancing scientific truth as part of the larger desire to promote, quote, mankind's happiness, unquote. This latter principle was perhaps best exemplified by one of the Academy's earliest members, Jean-Jacques Bell, who donated his sumptuous townhouse and impressive library to the Bordeaux Academy in 1739 on the condition that his books be made available to the city's inhabitants. Reaching out beyond the limits of the Academy's own walls was an integral part of the institution's mission. On a local level, the Academy invited Bordeaux's citizens to attend an annual conference in September. More famously, however, the Academy also organized one or sometimes two essay contests a year that they publicized throughout Europe. All of these competitions came with significant cash prizes. The contests announced by the Bordeaux Academy during the institution's early years reflected an interest in the natural sciences. There were so-called prize problems related to the nature of air, the fluidity of bodies, the formation of kidney stones, the source of earthquakes, the movement of the muscles, and the origin of natural springs and rivers. Toward the end of the 1730s, one also detects an increasing interest in proto-anthropology, particularly a concern with the distinctiveness of non-European and especially African anatomy. In 1737, Bordeaux's Royal Academy of Sciences announced a competition on the effect that breathed air might have on human blood. While this contest might now seem innocuous, such a competition would have been seen as an open invitation to speculate on the perceived liabilities of a non-European climate, and in particular, how the hot air of the torrid zone bounded on the north by the Tropic of Cancer and in the south by the Tropic of Capricorn might adversely affect African plasma. Two years later, when the academicians announced their contest on the origin of blackness, the Academy's fascination with African anatomy had become far more explicit. This call for essays promised the winner a gold medal worth 300 livres, roughly the annual salary of a common worker at the time. And one more small paragraph. By the spring of 1741, 16 submissions had arrived at the Academy. Several of the essays were obviously written by profoundly religious thinkers who explained the origin of blackness by referring to the Old Testament story of Noah 
and the curse of Canaan. The majority of the submissions, however, attempted to put forward more scientific explanations. A number of these essays affirmed that the climate of the torrid zone had transformed both the physiognomy and physiology of sub-Saharan Africans, perhaps producing an overabundance of bile that led to a darkening of skin and hair. Several others hypothesized that African mothers communicated blackness to their children through the power of the maternal imagination, imprinting physical traits to their fetuses at conception. There was also one, quote, empirically based, unquote, submission, an essay written by a French anatomist who had conducted autopsies on the corpses of enslaved people while serving as a doctor in Guyana, and he claimed that African blood was blacker than that of whites. There we go. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. Um, so, um, where shall we begin? I think um, per uh, perhaps the first place to begin is uh, this competition took place in 1739. And one of the things that you uh, trace in your um, in your book, The Anatomy of Blackness, is the way in which these kinds of um, questions, this sort of um, obsession with uh, um, physiology and anatomy really begins kind of uh, starts in mid-century. Um, and so th this is kind of the early, the early part of that obsessive focus on um, the physical. What do you think, what, what do you think changed between the early 18th century and the time of that competition in people's attitudes and, and why? Yeah, that's a, uh, an important and a complex question, but let me try to answer it uh, as follows. Um, I think that without being too simplistic, and as an 18th century specialist yourself, you know that there had been all sorts of kind of overdetermined narratives about the Enlightenment era um, over the years. And one of the big ones is the big shift from secular thought, from rather from a, a kind of religious orientation in the way that uh, 18th century folks thought about the world to a more secular orientation. And uh, although we, uh, there's a great kind of syncretic thing that's going on at all times, religion and science are in a dance throughout the century, there certainly is a movement in that direction which has an enormous impact on what I call proto-ethnography and proto-anthropology. For a long time, um, biblical explanations of just who the human species was or is um, really were very effective, and it was difficult for people to uh, question those things. But it just seems to me that at the same time that the so-called philosophes and philosophers and natural historians and, and, uh, and natural philosophers are really kind of claiming the right to talk about the natural world in a way that's not dependent on uh, scripture, that it really opens the door to totally different explanations of of particularly non-Europeans. Uh, that uh, the, the question of, of um, non-European ethnography, anatomy, and origins had been floating around for a long time, particularly after uh, the so-called discovery of the New World. Uh, Amerindians were not in the Bible, 
the New World was not in the Bible, and all of a sudden uh, European thinkers, theologians, and philosophers were needed to kind of come to grips with the fact that this is absolutely new data. And uh, pretty much um, the church was able to kind of keep a cap on that for a long time. But by the 17th, late 17th century and early 18th century, some new explanations and the desire to kind of come up with new explanations really start taking over. So that's the kind of the basic thing. It's, it, is, it is a kind of a, a seismic shift that's going, taking place, and particularly in the 1740s and 1750s and 1760s. And, and, and again, without um, falling into another uh, historical trap, that of periodization, I think I, we can actually uh, talk about uh, really significant shifts that happen over the course of several decades. And we can actually kind of pin down the way that uh, people are talking about non-Europeans, particularly Africans, because Africans are the kind of extreme data point that allows Europeans to come up with the idea of race. Race is a brand new idea in many ways during the 18th century, at least the idea of race as a, a zoological construct. Hello, everyone. I'm interrupting this podcast for a moment to make a couple of brief announcements. ARIO magazine is on hiatus until the 21st of September to allow us to complete some work on our website and on our forthcoming book, Free Speech, Defending the Fundamental Liberal Value. We are still accepting submissions, so if you would like your article to be considered for the autumn, contact us at submissions at ariomagazine.com. Meanwhile, if you are looking for summer reading material, I have a new substack out called The Second Swim. It's free. You can find it under my name or under the title The Second Swim. And it's pieces that are too personal or too much in the realm of creative writing rather than argumentation to fit in with ARIO. So go find it, The Second Swim, on Substack. And meanwhile, enjoy the rest of the interview. Mm, yeah. And there were two. So what the thing that supplanted the kind of uh, the biblical narrative, which was, um, I'll, I'll sort of retell this story in case anybody doesn't know it. Um, and actually, I wasn't very familiar with it myself. Um, the, I, the biblical story is the idea that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and um, Japheth. And um, he got drunk one night, um, and then he was lying naked. And his sons, um, two of his sons saw him uh, and covered him up. And the other son didn't. He just kind of looked at him lying there naked and laughed at him. And um, in this kind of extraordinary, because the Old Testament God is such a kind of snowflake, cancel culture, um, <laughs> endorsing snowflake, um, he, uh, um, he decided that the guy who laughed at Noah that he and his descendants had to be cursed forever. So his son Canaan, his descendants went to dwell in Africa, and um, and then in some verse, versions of the story, um, not in the Bible itself, but in later versions of the story, they were also marked, and they were marked out as the kind of servants of servants, as inferior by their skin color. So that's the kind of biblical explanation of this. Um, it's God get having a hissy fit. Um, but once you took away that explanation, you talked about two 
um, two kind of main separate lines of thought. And one, which is the line that all the people in the Bordeaux um, competition take, and which was the um, the kind of more orthodox line of thinking in the 1730s, was a theory of degeneration, an idea that there was some kind of, um, originally everyone was white, and then as the human race spread out and went to other countries, um, down in the hot parts of the globe, they degenerated um, into into kind of black people, quote unquote. Um, can you say more about those two lines of thought, the monogenesis versus polygenesis uh, lines of thinking? Yeah, it, it's um, you really uh, zeroed in on the heart of this this whole question. Um, it's interesting that degeneration theory is, uh, as I read in the introduction, it's part and parcel of the question. What is the degeneration of African skin? What is the de- degeneration of African hair? So implicit in the question, or actually explicit in the question, is the idea that something happened to Africans. And uh, one of the things that occurred to me while writing this book with uh, Skip Gates was that uh, that um, they were uh, predetermining the kind of question, or they're determining the kind of question they wanted to get, the kind of answer and essay they wanted to get from the participants. And that was one that was absolutely not polygenist. Now, let me do a couple of, of footnotes here. Polygenist or polygenesis is the idea that uh, people or humans came into existence on separate continents in separate ways by God or not by God. Um, and they, are, they may be part of the same species, but they have separate origins. So a really biblical version of this would be that God is uh, floating above the earth or somewhere in the universe. And, you know, during the seven days says, okay, we are going, you know, we have, uh, you know, Africans are here, Europeans are here. They're all different and they all have their own traits. They have their own liabilities and their advantages and so on and so forth. And he made them like that. And it's a static type fixed uh, notion. And then there's also, um, um, a non-biblical version of this whole thing that just people kind of grew organically out of their own lands, but separate and different. And when you have different aptitudes and propose different aptitudes and capacities and cognitive potential, then you obviously have different political potentials and political rights. Uh, if we look at these people as almost a different species and some people like Voltaire actually said that, that uh, uh, Africans and uh, Asians and Europeans were different species of people, really species. So he's using a kind of a, a classificatory term, which really implies real separation. So that's polygenesis. And monogenesis, as you said, is a theory which is much more compatible with the Bible. Um, and even if people were moving in, in a more secular direction, the kind of syn- the kind of syncretic idea I'm talking about, the idea of things, the blending of religion and science. It's just not a it's not a coincidence that you know the big scientific quote unquote <laughs> theory that pops up in France um, and in Europe is the idea of monogenesis. And this is the idea, as you said, that an original group of white folk 
presumably uh, getting off the ark in the Caucasus. And Blumenbach in the 1790s will use the word Caucasian to describe this phenomenon. This initial, initial group of white people move about the globe, kind of like the three boys, Noah's three boys, and they are fruitful and they multiply and they also degenerate and they change and shift. And this degeneration is brought about by different uh, f- types of food, the climate. There's a, this overlaps with hum- humoral theory, which dates back to Hippocrates. So there are a lot of different kind of ways of explaining this. But this idea of degeneration, which is your kind of getting a, a, an inferior uh, product uh, um, as a result of uh, deleterious, deleterious causes. So there's a kind of causation and causality and a, an effect on uh, bodies which change them over time. It's interesting to kind of juxtapose this or talk about this in the, in the, in the context of race because degeneration theory in many ways is uh, uh, could be conceived of as an anti-racist theory because at first it posits that there's really one big human race and it shifts and changes. And also it, it opens the possibility that um, uh, not only that people can degenerate from white to black, but they can, they can actually uh, return to white. So there's a really many, many people during the 18th century, including the most famous natural historian, of the time, whose name was Buffon, Georges Leclerc Comte de Buffon, George Buffon. George Buffon, um, uh, in his best-selling natural history, um, uh, said that uh, whites could degenerate into blacks and blacks could kind of regenerate into whites. And so this really blurred the lines between these fixist categories, which were also kind of taking shape as well in the 18th century. It's a it is a, a very complicated story, and obviously degeneration is the precise opposite of what we now know about uh, the human species. Um, the out of Africa thesis that, um, or that you know, the working theory, which has been established through um, studies of mitochondrial DNA and its, um, I guess, you know, kind of half life in the way that the uh, genesis, geneticists work on this. It's the exact opposite. That you know, the, the out of Africa theory is the the idea that a group a group of people in East Africa left uh, Africa in the you know hundred thousand years ago, more or less, and then they essentially degenerated in in these cold climates, and through natural selection became whiter and whiter as their bodies needed more and more vitamin D, and the people who had less melanin were selected for this. So it's really the precise opposite of uh, degeneration theory. But it's interesting to think that what is going on here as these biblical paradigms uh, break down the idea that God uh, created the world in seven days and it's all done and everything is fixed and doesn't change. You know, This is why evolution is so challenging to literalists. Uh, but what's happening in the 17th, 18th century is that people are starting to look at nature as something that has a history. And it means that the human species can have a history. And that is one of the things that really uh, uh, changes the way that uh, many people will start looking at different human varieties, as they were called. And eventually, you know, we're moving toward the, the notion of race, which is a, another matter that we can talk about in a second, maybe. Yeah, I was, I mean, the whole time that I was reading The Anatomy of Blackness, I kept thinking about um, David Deutsch's um, idea that 
all observation is theory laden. Um, that, that very kind of lovely and succinct um, idea uh, that uh, they're trying to account for a kind of a visually salient phenomenon, people's different skin color, and also to a lesser degree, also um, average differences in uh, how facial features look and in hair texture. Um, and they're kind of guessing. I mean, this is how, how people generate knowledge anyway. They begin with guesses. And it's interesting to me to see kind of both how close some of their guesses were to the truth of the matter, as far as we understand it now, and also how weirdly far off they were. I mean, they were correct that there was a kind of, they were correct that the human race started with a small group of people in one location who then spread out and diversified. Um, and that gave rise to differing skin colors, except that they just got the kind of, they got the direction completely wrong. They thought the direction went from Europe to Africa. Um, and as a result of that kind of error also, they, um, well, I guess if they had known that it started in Africa, they could also have said, well, that was the beginnings, the more primitive humans. And then they evolved into something more sophisticated. So there could have been a racist interpretation of the real story as well, you know, as, as the story that they told, the fake story they told. Um, so there is also the instant kind of imposition of, um, of this kind of this um, racist value laden racist narrative on top of it, this idea of a kind of degeneration. Um, and one of the things that you point out in the book is that um, the monogenist explanation, although it's kind of in a perverse way less racist than a polygenist explanation. So thinking that a race are degenerate hu human being, fellow humans, is better than thinking that they are a completely different species. Um, and nevertheless, there isn't a strong correlation between um, people's expressed um, opposition to slavery and the kinds of racist narratives that they subscribe to. And I'm going to read a really short bit from the anatomy of blackness here about Voltaire in particular, who's a really striking example of that. I have a lot of thoughts about this particular question. Um, well, we are looking for it. I could say something about that great maxim that you uh, came up with, uh, all, all observation is theory laden. Because I think that's really... Um, um, that's David, David Deutsch. Yeah. Uh, I didn't come up with but that. You, you, you cited you, uh, it. It's, um, I think it's really... Uh, very interesting to think about that in the context of a time when all of these thinkers uh, have in their little personal pantheon John Locke and uh, their their you know primary methodology supposedly is this radical empiricism where they are looking at natural data and ultimately will be drawing conclusions based on that as opposed to some a priori idea a la Descartes. So and yet you're right that the observation, the supposedly disinterested observation, is always theory-laden. And there's a, lots of different stories about that, particularly the way people look at the albino. The albino is uh, uh, could be read and understood in many different ways, people suffering from hypopigmentation. And, it, and when they look at uh, the case of albinism, 
they do so in a way in order just to uh, uh, justify uh, <laughs> justify monogenesis. Or if you're Voltaire, you look at the albino in such a way in order to justify polygenesis. So uh, there's so many examples of that that little aphorism observation is theory laden. So anyway, maybe you found the passage now. Uh, yes. So um, um, so this is so you were talking about um, how the first the scholars of the 1960s when they were writing about this sort of assumed, I'm summarizing a little bit here, um, assumed that there was, that there would be a um, um, a consistency between peoples, the philosophes who had less virulently racist um, ideas about Africans and Blacks um, and who were also most opposed to slavery, and this isn't the case. And you're uh, citing, um, uh, okay, you begin with a little bit on Diderot, and then it goes into Voltaire. Um, to understand the conflicting images of Africa in, a thought, in the thought system of a philosophe like Diderot, one had only to situate his writings within a periodized historical trajectory moving from an era of indifference regarding slavery until around 1750 to an era of guilt until about 1770, and finally to a time of activism. Um, uh, and by that you mean uh, coming up in the 1780s and 90s from the time of the Société des Amis des Noirs and that, that movement. In other words, Diderot's views of the African, whether degrading or positive, have often been seen as the products of larger product of larger shifts within a monolithic Enlightenment era mentality. So people think of it as a kind of historical progression in thinking, but actually it's more that um, people siloed off um, their views on their kind of biological theories about race from their views on slavery. So I'm going to just read a little bit again. Um, to a large degree. This misleading teleology is an extension of the classical narrative of enlightenment, a progress-driven narrative that follows the intellectual and political developments of the 18th century through to their seemingly inevitable conclusion, a time of revolution, republic, and in the case of the African, the temporary emancipation of 1794. Diderot's interventions on the black African clearly belie this interpretive framework. Although his portrait of the Negre did evolve over time, his overall relationship to the question of blackness remained more tied to context than to chronology. When Diderot treated the African from the point of view of natural history, he echoed the diagnostic understanding of blackness that was becoming increasingly rampant during his era. When constructing his defence, his defence of this oppressed people, on the other hand, he put forward his era's sentimentalized version of classical liberalism. In both of these cases, Diderot's so-called convictions regarding the black African were perhaps less real beliefs than they were the reflection of specific intent, conventions of genre, and competing Enlightenment-era epistemologies. And you go on to talk about um, Voltaire, who's an even more extreme example, uh, a more extreme example. 
Diderot is far from the only Enlightenment-era thinker whose beliefs regarding the African can be characterized as syncretic. Voltaire's varied writings on the African are even more so. By far the most race-oriented thinker of his generation, Voltaire repeatedly asserted in his Natural History Musings that Africans' morphology and supposedly limited powers of reason had conceptual significance. As he put it in his 1756 essay sur les mœurs et l'esprit des nations, their round eyes, their flat noses, their invariably fat lips, the wool on their head, even the extent of their intelligence, reflects prestigious divergences between them and other species of men. Such a view seems at odds with Voltaire's much better known moral indictments of chattel slavery, the most prominent being that voiced by the Negre de Suriname in Candide, 1759. Here, in contrast to the essentializing Voltaire, we find the more celebrated and universalist Voltaire, the voice of reason and critic of intolerance who ventriloquizes the suffering African slave. When we work in the sugar refinery and the, when the millstone catches our fingers, they cut off our hands. When we want to flee, they cut off our legs. I find myself in both situations. It is at this cost that you eat sugar in Europe. This latter outburst, one of the most famous moments in Candide, functioned as a moral litmus test for Voltaire's era. To witness the pathetic scene that Voltaire conjures up was seemingly to be forced to choose between two sets of values, those of common sense, universalism and empathy, and those of the planter, namely greed, cruelty and a lack of feeling. And yet this is perhaps a false binary. After all, this celebrated accusation of slavery camouflages the fact that, during his entire career, Voltaire never understood the link between his sneering representations of Africans and the justifications of human bondage espoused by pro-slavery thinkers. So that was, that was probably the biggest revelation for me in the book, The Anatomy of Blackness, um, that this kind of, um, I guess it, it's um, left me musing on a lot of things that I uh, personally, kind of personal beliefs of mine. For example, that you can't get an is from an ought, an ought from an is, and that um, you can and should separate um, an attempt to investigate the scientific truth of something from um, your political and moral and moral views, and seeing what's going on on here and the kind of the absolutely vicious. Um, if this isn't the worst passage, you cite some even worse, some worse passages later, the absolutely vicious racism that Voltaire and many of the other philosophers kind of fell prey to, I guess, um, when they were looking at things supposedly from an objective scientific perspective. Um, and the, the kind of complete separation uh, of that, that, that kind of race-obsessed view where you're concerned with human differences and with some humans being inferior to others, some groups being inferior to others, with their views on, with their writings about anti-slavery writings in which they're talking about the slave as just the archetypal suffering 
uh, an oppressed human being. There's it's just kind of an extraordinary naivety in this belief that um, the the race science stuff won't impact the politics. Yeah, you have gone over a, a whole bunch of really uh, interesting and uh, tough things. The way I wrote this book kind of explains some of those. Uh, if, if, I could, if I could digress for a second to talk about yeah, no, how I try, how I you know uh, came up with such kind of conclusions, which are kind of curious, right? So it's uh, you know in in describing the fact that we um, you know there's almost a Foucault type idea here that the, the what is being produced is is part of a kind of a larger discourse. I actually don't go in too much for those kind of things because I do try to consider myself an empiricist in in some ways. And what I did actually to to write the anatomy uh, book was to uh, uh, I tried to write it in a, initially in a kind of typical. Uh, intellectual history way, I was you know putting a trace or an idea and then chasing it down in various various genres and through through uh, you know uh, you know over the course of 150 years. But I finally figured out that I needed to start thinking like an 18th century person initially before looking at it critically. So I went back and read the travelogues because that's what people did. They read the travelogues, mm-hmm. and not only 18th century travelogues, but travelogues from the 15th, 16th, and 17th century. They all were in people's minds at the time. And then um, I, I, you know, I started getting this feeling of the fact that there were, you know, generic conventions when the same person was talking about similar ideas, but but uh, he generally he was insulated from, um, or you know, was was kind of led to say certain things a certain context because of the fact that he would be addressing a different audience. And that uh, there was not necessarily any kind of moral considerations when talking about natural history. I was stunned by the apolitical nature of much of the investigation into human difference until about 1750 or so, really. And that it's only at that point that there's a contamination of these two realms together. Uh, the encyclopedia, Diderot's and, uh, well, I'll say Jocul's contributions to the encyclopedia begin that, with that. Montesquieu also opened the door in his 1748 Spirit of the Laws. But before that, and even the contest, you know, the contest here in 1741, announced in 1739, that contest is seemingly entirely apolitical, which is to say, what is the source of the skin? You know, and people are not talking about the fact that if you look around Bordeaux at the time, and uh, and this is really an exploration, you know, this book is an exploration of what you're talking about here, the fact that there are so many different levels to these questions. There's an enormous ellipsis here. And the ellipsis in this dis- discussion of skin and hair is, you know, are these people the same as us? And then the, the second kind of ellipsis is the fact that uh, there are 4,000 uh, African slaves uh, or 4,000 uh, African slaves and slave Africans passed through France during the 18th century. And there are, you know, dozens, if not a hundred or a couple hundred uh, uh, enslaved Africans in Bordeaux at the time, walking around in Bordeaux. So blackness as a question is not only an abstract kind of idea, it's also the fact that the people are seeing uh, enslaved Africans or or, or sometimes uh, the sons, or the, the mixed-race sons or daughters of people who've come to Bordeaux uh, from plantations. And also the fact that Bordeaux is is very much linked to the very profitable uh, slave-based economies in 
the uh, Caribbean in Martinique, Guadeloupe, Saint-Domingue, which is uh, the old term for Haiti. So these things are really wrapped up. Uh, and even if the members of the Bordeaux Academy are not mentioning slavery, it's implicit in what they're doing. And, and Skip actually pushed me. He said, you know, Andy, you've got to look around. Uh, uh, let's look around for the people, uh, the members of the Academy. Are they linked to the slave trade? Initially, I said, you know, these guys are usually magistrates. Um, you know, some are landowners, but the landowners in Bordeaux, they're, they're, they're not, you know, as aristocrats, they're not going to get their hands dirty uh, 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 in something like the slave trade. And yet when I dug around and there they were, they, a lot of them had a lot of very concrete uh, relationships with both people and with plantations in the Caribbean. And so it was interesting to see that this was a, a consideration, a topic that was uh, even during this quote-unquote apolitical time in the 1740s was very much linked to um, these major economic considerations and the fact that Bordeaux was booming at the time. So is there a kind of a desire to come up with a de facto or a, a justification for the enslavement of these people? Maybe, particularly at a time when um, the religious explanations and justifications for slavery were no longer as effective because of the philosophers. And if I could talk about that for two seconds, I think that's interesting to, to, could, oh, yeah. to juxtapose the, um, that, 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 uh, that kind of periodization I'm talking about with you know, moving from religious to secular, that only, that doesn't only kind of obtain in the area of, of, uh, uh, kind of scientific inquiry but also in moral considerations as well. And so uh, enslaved Africans, captives taken to the Caribbean, at least by Catholics, uh, as opposed to uh, Protestants, but the, the Catholics baptized them uh, either before putting them in ships or uh, on ships, but generally once they got to the French Caribbean. And um, they baptized them because it was the justification in, according to the 1685 Code Noir, that in was saying more or less that you may give up your physical body, but you're gaining eternal salvation. And what a deal that is. Uh, you would never have had that in Africa. And that is the justification for a long time. There are other kind of more mercantile type justifications floating around, but that's the one that at least on an official level uh, throughout and through, throughout much of the 18th century is uh, quite effective. But when you get people like Montesquieu, and Diderot and this guy, Jocul, who wrote 17,000 articles for the encyclopedia. When you have these people, and even Voltaire, hammering, um, hammering some of these uh, ideas and talking about this is the, the price at which you drink your, uh, uh, your, your coffee and, and, and uh, sweeten it with sugar, people are, are starting to think about that differently. And this is coming from a, you know, a secularizing movement initially. Of course, there are then later religious objections from the Quakers and people like Thomas Clarkson. And so the uh, Protestants uh, are going to be ganging up essentially with, with the philosophers against these pro-slavery uh, um, uh, arguments. So yes, so there's lots of different categories to think about. Uh, I'm happy you talked about the idea of natural history being diagnostic. Uh, natural history initially was something that was uh, you know, if you go back and think about Pliny uh, and, you know, throughout the 17th century, 
it's something that is basically descriptive. It, it did not really explain things. You described nature because nature was fixed, uh, as we were talking about later earlier. And then as soon as nature starts getting a, a more of a history, and it seems like things can change over time, perhaps, right? As, as this kind of super pre-Darwinian idea is injected into uh, nature during the 18th century, then you can explain where people came from in a genealogy, in a, in a degenerative type de de genealogy, and then start looking at the bodies as being essentially pathological. And so African bodies, there is this diagnostic thing that's going on in these early explanations of who people are. And then that does dovetail with the political too. If these people are different cognitively, et cetera, that does give ammunition to the pro-slavery thinkers. And as soon as these religious justifications go away, then of course the pro-slavery thinkers are going to go and hang out and think about what the natural historians have been saying for a long time at a time when you didn't need to justify slavery through kind of scientific things. And they'll start using these ideas much more effectively. And that's when you start seeing um, uh, these kind of proto-racial ideas being harnessed by um, the pro-slavery lobby. So that's, you know, 1770 or so. And if I could take one quick thing about the Who's Black and Why book, um, one of the things we wanted to do is show that things did change remarkably over the 18th century. And in 1741, you have this contest on black skin. And the last third of the book is dedicated to a second contest, which took place in 1772, uh, for which the Academy received three essays. And that contest was essentially how to improve the quality of life. I'm really paraphrasing here. The quality of life of African captives aboard the French slave ships. Um, how to prevent them from getting sick from different diseases. And of course, this is a kind of a horrifying example of, of what we might call enlightened slavery, the idea that the Enlightenment belief in rationality and progress could be compatible with the slave trade. And the academy is now worried about the, the state of these poor Africans. Um, uh, it's very curious. Of course, um, that also means more profits for the people who uh, are both in the uh, in, you know, working the plantation system in the Caribbean and also for ship owners who were losing 15, sometimes or 20% of their quote unquote human cargo. So uh, yes, so there's a lot of things to think about 1740, 1750, 1760, 1770, where the uh, uh, anti-slavery movement takes off and everything shifts in the way that people are looking at the African, both in the realm of natural history and also in the area of uh, you know, human rights. Yeah, I was thinking about, I mean, there's, there is, of course, a sense in which um, you, it, it, it is, um, there, there is a kind of possibility of believing, for example, that Africans are inherently less intelligent than white people, um, but nevertheless condemning slavery. And I think there's a, I get a little bit of that feeling of the kind of infantilization of Africans, but nevertheless this kind of compassionate condemnation of slavery from things like Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, I don't want to condemn, condemn that book, um, as being entirely in that vein, but I get that, I get that feeling in places, um, in later anti-slavery writings. Um, but it's, um, 
but it's a it's a very um difficult it's a kind of position that's inherently sort of unstable, difficult to maintain, because children are control are kind of quote unquote enslaved. Children are controlled by adults. Um and sorry to go on a really weird tangent, but I recently uh read and absolutely loved the novel um Sirius, which I'm gonna just look up because I've forgotten who the author is. Um uh, yes, it's a novel by Olaf Stapledon, a science fiction novel. Um, and it's about a, it's a kind of blending of this, of Wuthering Heights and Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, but the main protagonist is, um, a, um, is a dog who, um, there's the kind of Frankenstein figure in the book is this geneticist who manages to implant Fully human intelligence into a dog, um, who is the uh, who is the um, the eponymous protagonist of the novel, the Sirius of the title, and um, that kind of um, the uh, um, the book is very much about um, what happens when um, your when your kind of expectation of the nature of of someone's nature. Um, is just heavily influenced by um, your expectations of their kind of limitations, uh, um, in this case, species-bound limitations. But there's something quite similar going on here uh, when you are, when not you personally, obviously, when people are kind of doing this, uh, when people are trying to separate, to have their cake and eat it by separating out the kind of how they're conceptualizing Black people and what they're saying about the appropriate way to treat to treat them, because you know the, there's an appropriate way to treat a dog, which you which uh, wouldn't work if dogs really did have human uh, did routinely have human intelligence. Yeah, I, I don't I, know if I'm making sense here. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's it is interesting that there are these kind of constants in the way that uh, people are looking at all categories. And, um, and sometimes there is, um, when it, when it came to thinking about uh, different, uh, uh, human varieties and races, I think that's kind of the thing that's interesting. If you look back late 17th century, early 18th century with the term variety as being one of the more proper scientific terms, and that's a botanical notion that implies continuity and hybridization. Um, you know, and and that some of the de- degeneration theorists like Buffon certainly talked about the varieties of human species. Uh, Linnaeus, who's problematic in his own way, talked about also human varieties as uh, as well. But but he also came up with very kind of trenchant categories. But as a, a lot of this stuff starts crystallizing in the 1740s and 1750s, you know, a term like race, which is a much more zoological term uh, starts being bandied about much more often in the 1760s. It really is taking off, uh, particularly after the anatomists kind of get in on the whole thing and start talking about specific physiological structures. And to get to your point, absolutely, when these things become part and parcel of a larger reading public, because more and more people become literate at this time, as this starts uh, happening, then you have a, a much more kind of um, uh, effective uh, 
of kind of racism, uh, to put it in a very strange way. Uh, when things are loosey-goosey in varieties, people can be really awful, xenophobic, and so on and so forth. But race really implies something really very different. When you start thinking about people as being members of different categories, entirely different categories, and this was the kind of legal reality in the Caribbean first, and then it becomes a kind of scientific reality later on as the ideas from the uh, Caribbean get imported and then recycled and then manufactured into this big repository of, of prejudice, and then the classifiers take over. So quickly to kind of talk about what what you're kind of alluding to here, and from a, from a, a somewhat genealogical point of view, the travel writers are producing the raw data for race, and uh, some of the early theorists, like the degeneration theorists, like Buffon, produce a kind of a genealogical model for some of these things. And then, there, of course, there are uh, kind of legal theorists, um, starting with you know the Spanish and the British have the Barbados laws, and then we also have the, um, the, the Code Noir. So then, there's a legalistic kind of ca- categorization of people, and then the scientific. Uh, uh, scientists get involved or doctors in medicines and atomists start talking about specific physiological structures. And then ultimately the classifiers who take, who gather all this information and create these very compelling categories. What's funny is that there's so many different categories um, and uh, proposed by different people, all of which contradict each other, but it's kind of like religion because the people who are into it believe that their religion is correct and they don't find the fact that there's 700 different religions uh, contradictory and therefore maybe none of these things are correct. This is what the kind of proto-racial thinkers are thinking. They might think that, well, that person is wrong or what I'm right. And there's so many different ideas out there, but more and more people are convinced that somebody will get it right because they all believe in this abstraction. The race is kind of like a virus that takes off once it comes to life in uh, the 18th century. It's a, a very, very powerful idea, super amorphous to begin with. And that's why I think it's important to talk about the fact that this is a, this didn't really exist as um, a, a real concept until, you know, 270 years ago or so. The uh, There are seeds and there are all sorts of kind of amorphous ideas that existed before it. But it really comes on, and it comes on at a time when we have more secular thinking, when the slave trade starts booming, when philosophers uh, start questioning the slave trade, and then when the uh, people involved in the, in the slave trade grab all this stuff that's been floating around for decades and marshal it in an entirely different way. And that's the thing that really does kind of create these trenchant categories. And the classification schemes of Blumenbach and Kant and Exelman really break down humans into these readily understandable categories. And they also allow people to, to organize prejudice in a way that's incredibly compelling. Prejudice is floating around. Everyone has different prejudices for early on about different people. But when it gets organized in a way with these super uh, compelling, it's like the infrastructure for racism, these categories, these classification schemes, which uh, come out in the 1770s. It's mostly the Germans who are responsible for that. That really changes the world. Mm. Yeah, I feel, I must say, I'm rather relieved that my personal hero uh, of the Enlightenment, Samuel Johnson, um, didn't get into any of this stuff. Um, you know, never, as far as I know, became interested in race in that way. <laughs> um, I'm extremely, I'm extremely happy about that. Um, 
and and his only comments were uh, anti-slavery comments. But he never talks about uh, when he talks about um, American Indians and when he talks about Negroes um, is the word that he uses. He talks entirely in terms of political situations, mm-hmm. um, and um, there's just zero speculation about race in his work, as far as I know. Somebody might correct me now. Yeah, um, no, I think that I think that's right, and I think it's really nice to look at. at, at I mean, you know, when, when you go back and uh, think about the 18th century, you think of what if. Iona was living in Liverpool, you would probably have some pretty nasty ideas, I'm sure, or I was living in Bordeaux. Um, you know, you there are, it's very hard to escape. I think uh, students today think that, you know, no matter what, their cells in the 18th century would be able to kind of be, uh, have a, a brilliant and, and enlightened ideas. I love looking at thinkers who question themselves and have moved on from things. And Diderot gives us the best example of that. And as you know, he's my hero. Um, but Diderot, um, he definitely wrote about uh, the African quite a bit. When he first started the encyclopedia, it was he who was writing all the articles. Um, he wrote 2,000 articles for the, I think, the first volume. And there's lots of little towns and cities and ethnicities that start with A. And he writes about Africans there. And he also uh, is going to be uh, uh, essentially grabbing a bunch of ideas from Buffon's natural history and the degeneration theory. And he puts that in the encyclopedia in an article called human species, the human species. Um, and in that one, he will echo some of the more prejudicial ideas associated with Africans, like they have peu d'intelligence, not very much intelligence. So here at this point, he's absorbed the, some of these ideas. And what's really great about him, I think, is later on, um, as he becomes, you know, you know, at this point, he's also pumping so many articles out that uh, clearly, I'm not sure he believes anything he's writing anyway, really, too much. He's really plagiarizing, more or less. But when he really gets thinking about this in the 1770s, he becomes a, a ghostwriter for really one of the biggest best-selling books of all time, which was The History of the Two Indies. It's the first real examination, a philosophical examination of colonization. And he writes, I don't know, 25 or 30% of this book uh, as a ghostwriter. Um, in fact, you know, we didn't really know he did all this until the uh, 1950s when the last uh, manuscripts were found. And in, this, uh, in the three, three editions of this book, 1770, 1774, and 1780, we see Diderot's uh, ideas progressing. And we see him really the first thinker to refute the, uh, all these new uh, racial ideas being bandied about by the pro-slavery, lo- pro-slavery lobby. He attacks that. He says that the science is spurious. And everyone's essentially the same. He also has these great post-colonial moments. I mean, there's a post-colonial moment in the uh, Voltaire's uh, Suriname uh, African uh, who is taking the floor and talking about his, his situation. And Diderot will do the same thing and say uh, that um, you know the planter deserves a coup, a, coup, a, coup, a, a, a dagger strike, essentially. Um, in uh, that, and predicts essentially what will happen in, in Haiti about a decade later. So it's interesting to see that Diderot uh, is a real, uh, I guess you would call him an anti-racist thinker in the 18th century, but it's even more interesting that he had to kind of grow into that as he confronted things. And if we're to evaluate Enlightenment thinkers, which we do all the time now, I think it's I think it's fair to, you know, uh, to, I think there is a way of evaluating them somewhat fairly. Um, you know, the, 
the, the people who have had a really tough time recently are, are Hume and Voltaire because they, they wrote some really awful things. And both of those men certainly had enough context for uh, thinking through the humanism, which was supposedly part of their worldview, both of them. And so I feel that they are um, not guilty, but it's, 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 uh, it's interesting to evaluate them compared to some illiterate sailor in Liverpool for whom I might have, uh, you know, be a little bit more indulgent. And then you've got someone, like I said, like Diderot, who's interesting, who, who did have some prejudicial things to begin with, but then who is able to evolve and kind of live up to what Enlightenment philosophy is supposed to be, the universalism, the humanism. And the fact that um, you have to be critical about things such as uh, the the racialized science uh, coming out of uh, the plantation system. So, I mean, my goal was never to go back and you know sort people into good and bad in the 18th century. I think those I call them legacy driven narratives uh, don't really do too much because you end up having um, uh, uh, your observations are colored by theory when you're doing that. Uh, but it's, it is interesting to kind of go back and look at, look at some of these people to say, okay, well, this guy here, you know, he could have maybe done a better job in, in certain ways, because if you look what he writes here, you know, he had the wherewithal to kind of free himself from his own thinking. So I mean, I usually get, I usually wouldn't bring up something like this because as I said, I'm not terribly interested in these legacy driven uh, uh, stories but um, that is certainly where the discussion of, uh, you know, who is Kant is right now, who is Hume, who is Diderot, who is Voltaire. And so it, it is important to think about how we do talk about these people and, and if we have to evaluate them rather than just saying, no, it's juvenilia or it's a footnote. I think it, I think it is uh, pertinent to talk about some of these, uh, these writings. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, my perspective, um, trying not to go into this too much because it's a huge and very general topic, but I guess I'm a radical non-believer in free will. And I also tend to think that people don't have ideas, ideas have people. Mm. Um, and especially when I'm, I feel that way, even really with co contemporary people. And I definitely feel that way looking back in history when everybody is already dead. It's a question of, good ideas and bad ideas being around and kind of sifting through and exploring the ideas. Um, I don't find it really very interesting to do evaluation of the people in most cases, but I think it's striking how, um, um, how kind of, uh, how much inconsistency there was and just um, how blind people were to the inconsistency of their, on the one hand, views on um, Africans from a kind of, from the sort of quasi biological standpoint. And on the other hand, their political views on slavery. And also when I talk about it being kind of a floating sea of ideas rather than being about people, I make an exception for Samuel Johnson because I simply <laughs> adore that man. <laughs> yeah. um, people always said that uh, Diderot didn't have ideas, ideas had him. And I think that what you're saying, uh, that idea that they, the people are more or less determined by both the genre within which they're writing, who they're talking to, and you know the, the context is, is, is as much of a factory for what comes out of people's pens as their mind and their, and their free will. I tend to agree with you completely on that. So, It's interesting to me, um, um, 
I guess I do want to come get into a little bit of the detail nitty gritty, um, but I've been um, as I was reading, I was thinking a lot about contemporary debates about race and IQ, um, and my stance on that has always been well. First of all, my stance remains that I am a free speech um, uh, extremist. I am a jihadist of free speech. Um, so I I do think that everybody should be able to study whatever they like, say what say, write and discuss whatever they wish. Um, and um, I also I'm not really interested in worrying about whether the individuals concerned are motivated by racism or racist or not. Um, but I have also kind of tended to the idea that these debates are siloed off from actual questions of racism. So there's a fact about um, race and IQ out there somewhere, uh, which could be discovered. I don't think we've really discovered it yet. Um, and maybe there are uh, race-related differences in IQ, um, and um, which in one sense would be very flattering to me personally, because um, Charles Murray claims that Parsis have the highest average IQ of any ethnic group. Um, but on the other hand, um, you know, that could also be nonsense. But whatever the truth is, that's distinct from how we should treat people, which is we should treat people as individuals without preconceptions, with equality of opportunity, etc. And reading this book actually made me feel maybe I'm really wrong about that. And those two things are not siloed off from each other, that what we... Um, believed to be true on a factual basis is going to influence um, how what how we behave ethically um, inevitably um, but you may be I don't know how, people what, kind of transcend these things but I think a lot of people can't and uh, mm -hmm. first I mean I think that the whole notion of IQ has been uh, debunked in certain ways uh, as something almost natural right so the, the idea of the kind of the, the idea of IQ as being something that's really ingrained biological um, has, you know, changed a, a lot uh, uh, very recently because um, I think that the fact that, uh, um, you know, for example, you know, universities are getting away from standardized tests because it, it's often uh, testing the abilities of the parents to create good little students as opposed to some kind of native intelligence and uh, the only way to really uh, uh, actively kind of distinguish among different groups, and I can get to that in a second, would be to have everybody have the exact same kind of uh, uh, upbringing as opposed to looking for something that may be attached to um, some kind of curious category. And something like the bell curve, I mean, there's so many methodological errors there uh, in terms of the way that, and this is the Murray book you're talking about, that the, the way that um, the groups themselves are constituted. Uh, you know, how, where, do, where does blackness start? Uh, where does, where does, you know, Parsi start for, where, 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 where does uh, um, the Persian start? I mean, the, the kind of genetic makeup of the groups is often so kind of squirrely that there might be uh, two different, two, two, two different people who belong to two different groups who are actually more genetically similar than people um, who are in the same group, in the, in the groups that are being identified as being separate. So there's a lot of kind of very strange things in the overall methodology. I think 
it's pretty obvious to uh, see that uh, these standardized tests, you know, people who have had um, parents who don't speak, uh, um, you know, English in the American or, or UK context, don't speak English as well, are going to have a rougher time or first gen students. So there are a lot of different things like that, which really uh, kind of undermine the idea of some kind of native intelligence, you know, the fact, and I, I mean, I always thought that, you know, um, and it, it, it holds us all back in certain ways that, oh, I'm not as smart as this person. Like there was some almost like a card I was dealt as a child. And you think back to kind of grade school and stuff. Oh, I can't do that because that person's way smarter. I mean, I can't play music because this, that, and the other thing. So I had plenty of things like that. And, you know, some of those kind of liabilities are still with me. I think about those things all, you know, occasionally that I, I didn't do these things because I just thought I wasn't cut out for it. And I think that's really interesting. Um, you know, that we, it's nice to kind of get beyond the idea that, um, you know, there's some kind of gene for brilliance or something like that. I, I most of the, I mean, there are geniuses and I, I believe a hundred percent that there are certain people who are, have the kind of the fury of some kind of genetic makeup who can kind of divide nine numbers by nine numbers. That's something biological. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of the people we see as really exceptional are exceptional because they just have had an excellent education and they've studied and they've practiced the yo-yo maws of the world. They practice things like that too. So I think that's a, a nicer parable for us all than um, uh, coming up with kind of rigid categories that will be deployed by people who are not nearly as enlightened as you in ways that are nefarious, but I'm not talking about censorship either, but that's just my opinion on, on a very complicated. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. I think, I mean, I disagree with some of what you said there, but I don't want to get into it now because I think it will take us too far yes, from over drink sometime. Um, what we're currently discussing. Yeah, exactly. But I do think that um, there's a really interesting interview between Coleman Hughes and Charles Murray. I have a lot of time for Murray personally. I actually quite like him, and I think he is well motivated. But um, uh, and not just because he speaks well of Parsis, <laughs> but um, I think that um, Murray's idea that it's important to talk about kind of uh, race differences in IQ in society. I think that's extremely misguided, and that Coleman is really right to push back against that. That it's not only kind of not important, but it's are just uh, incredibly counterproductive, and it also assumes a kind uh, that we've reached a stable state of knowledge on that, which I just don't think is the case that's, either. That's that's what um, I'm saying. Yeah, um, yeah. It's uh, talking of knowledge. It's really fascinating to me how um, uh, this is another thing that has come from kind of David Deutsch, who I've been reading recently because I'm about to do a podcast, not with him, but with a philosopher who's a kind of a specialist on Deutsch. And um, I, uh, one of the things Deutsch also says is that um, morals actually, uh, you know, good ethical um, beliefs frequently come from an accurate, a more accurate understanding of reality, more accurate ideas about reality. Um, and I was just very struck by kind of how extraordinarily um, wrong they were about many things that you would think could be just disproven by just kind of looking. Um, like, for example, uh, um, lots of claims that were taken on face value that uh, black people have 
their internal organs are a different color, or their brains are a different color, or their blood, or uh, their semen. Um, the semen was particularly interesting because it f feels to me like people were grasping towards an idea of heredity, which is in a sense more accurate. You know, skin color is not passed on in a Lamarckian way. You don't go down to a hot place, get tanned, and then your kids will will be born darker. Um, it is, you know, the, um, skin color inheritance is quite complicated, but it's, you know, it's definitely a genetic um, inheritance. Um, so I feel as though when they were obsessing on semen, that was partly maybe prurience also, and partly kind of fumbling really blindly towards some idea of that kind. But, you know, it's just um, those things would be so easily disproven by simply looking. That's kind of astonishing how, how uh, widespread and respectable those ideas were. Yeah, it is uh, absolutely amazing. That's one of the things uh, that led me to call this book The Anatomy of Blackness because I, I just felt like the anatomical substructures represented almost metaphorically the idea of race going from the outside of the body to the inside of the body. In fact, maybe when the idea of difference was on the outside, it wasn't really race. But when you get to the inside and you start talking about black brains and black bile and black food and so on and so forth, then you're really talking about something which is permanent. And you're right to talk about the fact that, you know, black semen, which is an idea dating from antiquity, uh, um, and probably like not actually colored black, but they talked about black semen, like the black seed inside the semen or something, I think. Um, by the time mm. it, it, people talk about the 18th century, they're much more literal about it. And um, that idea is floating around. And there's even this bizarre thing I found uh, about a, a scientific expedition where they, they set off uh, around the globe. This is an ill-fated mission that actually sunk. But they, uh, uh, this mission sought out to gather semen samples around the globe uh, in order to see uh, what the color of semen was in different parts of the world. So there was this idea that was probably linked to some kind of polygenetic type notion that they would be able to kind of figure these things out on a on a uh, the level of these heredity-based structures or linked structures. So yeah, that's true. And, and, and um, it's funny that these ideas bounce around and they just are, they circulate like fake news all the way through deep into the 19th century, particularly by the pro-slavery lobby in the United States. Wherever people are trying to justify these things, they go back to these, uh, these great, great scientific discoveries. In fact, one of the people in this, in this book, the guy in Barrer, he's a guy who talks about black bile and so on and so forth. And that becomes very important. We see it in Thomas Jefferson, you know, 40 years later. So this contest did have an effect on the way that uh, people are talking about uh, race you know, decades and decades later. Um, and it's curious, all evidence to the contrary, notwithstanding, they just kept on going and talking about it. I mean, lots of people, for example, must have seen black people's blood. I mean, uh, hun hundreds of people must, uh, hundreds of people, many, many people must have seen black people's blood. Um, and nevertheless, it's kind of circulate, continue to circulate in scientific um, circles until really late that um, their blood was darker. Yeah, it's just I think part of extraordinary to me. The fact that it's, it's being often seen against black skin, uh, darker skin, 
mm-hmm. and that you know just just in terms of uh, contrast and everything else, it's uh, um, uh, blood looks different on a pale body. So it, it's I'm not making excuses for that, but it's it I can see yeah, how sure. people would be thinking that. But it's uh, what would happen is that the you know a couple of what happened in fact was that anonymous would say this. And uh, then um, people would just start seeing things that way. It's really funny how uh, people's perception is literally colored by uh, what seems to be uh, disinterested scientific inquiry. Yeah, there is this very, very strong obsession with color in a, in a kind of absolutely literal sense that the dark skin color must reflect darkness in all kinds of other anatomical ways. And um also that um that's reflected also in some of the parts that I find most difficult to read uh, in the book. There's some really uh really kind of uh horribly sick <laughs> um there's a kind of very sick sort of voyeuristic quality to some of the writing about um black anatomy in this period. Um and uh, uh some of the worst of it is uh when they're talking about the um uh, the albinos. Um, do you want to say something about that, about how uh, albinism was perceived and theorized? Yeah. Uh, the albino is really one of the uh, discoveries, I think, that is or one of the linchpins, or the linchpin in many ways, of the theory of race uh, during the 18th century. Because for someone like Buffon, whose idea it was that there was this great degenerative genealogy that he came up with. Um, and albinos were interesting in that first, they were not called albinos um, by, uh, they were called white Negroes. Um, and they were called that because the idea was that they were actually an example of something that was either between these two categories, because the features obviously were more African um, when they were born of African parents, I should say. So the I, first thing I should say is that people identified al, uh, uh, albinos as only coming from African parents, right? So it was more difficult to identify people who have albinism if they are very light. So in Scandinavia, it would be more difficult to identify um, kind of the Johnny Winters of the world. That's the guy's name, right? So it's, it's harder to see them. And so they weren't seen as a kind of a people suffering from hypopigmentation, the lack of, uh, of melanin. But certainly much more obvious in, uh, as, uh, in, in, uh, in, in Africa. Or in, for example, the, uh, um, in the Caribbean, if, you, if uh, an albino child was born of two black parents. So um, this kind of funny thing is, is out there. And people are, some people are saying it's a separate kind of race. And then other people are saying, well, it's, it's, you know, people, this is just an example of some kind of leprosy or, you know, malnutrition. There's lots of different theories, but the one that takes over is the idea that the white uh, Negro is an example of a throwback that it proves the primacy of the white race, because what's happening is that um, Africans are actually giving birth to an example of where they came from. And that um, is a, a, becomes a hugely important kind of justificatory concept for Buffon talking about the primacy of the white race. Later on, he discovers that uh, there are albinos all over the world, but he never goes back and retrofits this, uh, this idea. He called them blafard, les blafards. So it's really, the, the albinos, albinos are, f- are really funny. And then for Voltaire, 
he couldn't possibly admit that they were examples of some phenomenon that had to do with two different races. So he calls them a different name. He calls them white moors. And he says they are only born in Africa. They're not born anywhere else. And it's a, a particular kind of race, a separate race, you know, created at the same time as everyone else, but it's the lowest of the races. It's lower than Africans because they're weaker and dumber and everything else. So he really kind of um, uh, really dumps on the uh, uh, the white Moors as being really, really backward because he needed to, to just keep his polygenous theory going. So the albino question in the 18th century is, is hugely important. And each each group that's thinking about, you know, how they want to, each, each kind of a circle of thinkers needed to uh, use the albino, deploy the albino in ways that had to do with their own theories. Again, that that uh, uh, observation being theory laden uh, was uh, definitely operative in, in both for the polygenists and the monogenists who looked at uh, the albino question. There was also that um, example of a young girl with uh, vitiligo. Okay. Right. So that was, a, um, you, you know, I'm sorry, I, I didn't get to the second half of your question, was the, the kind of voyeuristic aspect. Mm. And the fact that mm. it, what's so tough, uh, even though these people who come to Europe are among the luckiest because they're, they're, they're taken from a, a life of slavery on a plantation um, and taken and, you know, fed, but they become essentially uh, um, members of a, a zoo in uh, in Paris or London, where they're being exhibited and prodded and poked and and examined by not only the scientific committee uh, community, but they're they're taken to dinner parties and things like that. Terribly dehumanizing. Um, I mean, people have always talk about the the Venus hot and tot, so the so called Venus hot and tot, the the, the coy woman from uh, um, South Africa who was paraded around uh, Europe and uh, whose remains were finally repatriated. That's the kind of most notorious example, but there's lots of different people, the, the, the child with Lego, um, uh, albino children taken to the Royal Academy of Sciences, examined, written about, and then taken to dinner parties or supper parties and also written about. So um, there was an albino that's seen by um, the Academy of Sciences, then Voltaire sees, sees the same kid at a as five-year-old boy seen at a dinner party. And then the one you're talking about, there's this woman named Genevieve uh, who is taken, a woman suffering from hypopigmentation, albinism. She's taken to um, the, what is the, now the, the, uh, um, the Jardin des Plantes, the botanical gardens in Paris where Buffon has his own kind of headquarters. He's a, he runs that and he examines her there. And, uh, you know, he, he's actually talking about how he's looking her over and there's an erotic element there too, because she's stripped naked and she appears naked in, in the engraving inside um, the natural history book. Yeah, the young child with vitilgo, there's kind of weird theories about how uh, she's the product of a kind of black, a black Negro and a white Negro, quote unquote, um, an albino, and just a really, really bizarre. Um, the kind of, it feels to me as though, um, returning to the kind of, uh, um, the problem of where to sort of carve reality at the seams, at the joints and, um, and the same objections that, um, I think we both have to Murray's work that he's kind of carving, he's kind of attempting to carve things at a joint that might not exist. Um, it, 
it does also seem extraordinary to me that on the one hand there is this conception of a kind of um, um, an essence of blackness, and on the other hand that is uh, completely contradicted by everyday experience of uh, mixed race people, of whom there were many, many in the Caribbean at this time, um, many mixed race children, um, and. Many kids, uh, you know, with a wide range of skin colors. Um, this sort of, I think, um, I think there are some, uh, it's one of the arguments that some of the monogenists put forward, which is how can, how can black people be a separate species? Because, um, they can, uh, breed with, with white people and produce fertile offspring. You know, if they really were a, a separate species, mulattoes, as they're calling the mixed race people, would be would all be sterile like mules. Um, so they're so close to kind of getting it, but um, but yet so far off. Yeah, I think that the person you're, that really is uh, really emblematic of all the the contradictions is this guy Buffon, it's B-U-F-F-O-N. I keep on talking about him. He's super interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I, I visited his his uh, his house in Montbard in France, um, and he. Uh, what's fascinating about him is he has a travelogue type side to him where he will trot out a lot of the prejudices of the era, certainly, including things like they have uh, Africans may have less intelligence. But he, at the same time, he is the guy who is putting forward that argument that you just cited there. It's the argument of interfecundity, the fact that if if members of a group are able to pr- uh, produce offspring together, then they're necessarily members of the same species. And he also um, talked about the human race as a human species as being uh, composed of thousands of different categories as a huge palette of colors. And when in the natural history, he talks about the varieties of the human species and he moves around the globe, you know, from place to place. And you can see this kind of a shift in color as he's going. He's making the argument that degeneration has produced this huge number. And he also said, you cannot divide people up. And he's fighting against Linnaeus, whom he hated. Linnaeus, the Swedish uh, naturalist and classifier who in 1735 uh, 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 published his first um, uh, edition of the System of Nature and in which he broke humans down into specific categories and he breaks everything else down into categories too. It's this great kind of grid system thing and it drives Buffon absolutely berserk. Um, particularly, you know, uh, related to, well, questions related to uh, the animal and the human, but also related to the fact that, um, you know, it's impossible to create categories where they don't exist, uh, arbitrary categories and class and genre and so on and so forth. So that's why he's, he's substituting a, something based on a biological processes for processes as opposed to an examination of the jawbone, which will bring together the horse and the sloth and the human. And uh, mm-hmm. so he can't stand that kind of thing. And so it's interesting how this tension, you know, really started in the 18th century between the, the classification and then the implications of classification. And, the, and also what we might call an anti-classificatory impulse, which is what you're talking about. You know, you're the, you're, in many ways, you've inherited some of the ideas that Buffon put forward. Mm-hmm. Um, Andy, um, so I usually keep the podcast to around um, an hour and 30 minutes. I don't want to end it quite quite there. I do want to talk about your new book. But first, I just want to ask, is there anything, is there anything that I 
haven't asked you that you hoped I would ask or um, a topic that we haven't covered that you think is important to cover? Um, and if so, we'll look at that and then we'll go on to talking a bit about your new project. I don't think so. I think you've done an amazing job. I mean, if we got deeper into this than I have and with just about everybody. So, and in a very accessible way too. So hats off. It's not easy. Thank you. Hats off. Thank you. Um, So, um, Andy, you're now working on a a new project, which is also, um, which is also quite closely related to these themes. And, um, and, I think it's uh, quite in, an interesting structure that you've chosen for that book. Can you um, talk us through your new project, what it's about, and um, your new book project? Sure. I suspect this will be my my third and last uh, book about race, um, unless something dramatic happens to me. So, you know, the first book, Anatomy of Blackness, is this uh, intellectual history that moves through lots of different genres and comes up with, uh, I think, a pretty good workable um, set of ideas about how race crystallized in the 18th century. And then Who's Black and Why is about uh, this contest and our, the two different contests and it, the, 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 the kind of contextualization. It's kind of a, a vertical sample of what happened in a certain city and how uh, race was being produced and, and, and the importance of institutions in creating race, the importance of scientific academies, which are different from, from universities. And the new book uh, is actually a combination of some of the things I've discovered in working on race for, I guess, about 12 years now, Um, and the kind of methodology that I came up with in writing about Diderot, which is a biography, an intellectual biography. And I I realized that while writing the biography of Diderot, that it, it was, I was learning more about the 18th century by figuring out when on what went on in his life than I did by studying intellectual history. And I know I discussed this with you at one point, um, either informally or more formally on the Diderot podcast. But the fact that, you know, when you're figure out what people eat in prison, what you figure out how long it takes to be in a coach, what a lieu means, uh, uh, how you measure time, space, uh, how much food costs, apartments, you know, uh, building codes and art history. I learned so much about just everyday life and kind of cultural history that I, I realized that I was missing out um, in many ways when talking about race because I didn't know enough about that. And by looking at the Bordeaux contest, I really realized that you know, the lives of the people, including like who they're married to and who their cousins are and so on and so forth, had a huge impact on on their views on, you know, we call proto-anthropology. So I decided to do a biographical history of race, which has never been done before as far as I can tell. I'm calling it the race makers, and it goes from uh, Louis the Fourteenth, who is responsible, along with Colbert, for the uh, Code Noir, the set of slave laws in the French colonies, all the way to Jefferson. And then, um, so I'll be looking at a series of lives, and almost the, the, the people I'm looking at, you know, ten figures. It's not exhaustive at all. The figures are almost allegorical, and that they represent certain tendencies. So you'll have your anatomist, you will have your classifier. You'll have your travel writer. You will have a Dominican priest who runs a slave plantation. You'll have your philosopher in Voltaire and Hume. You'll have the German classifiers and Kant and and uh, and uh, and or Blumenbach. I haven't, I haven't written the second half. I've written about half of it right now. But I think it's actually a more accessible way. I mean, you talked about how tough it was to plow through 
anatomy. It, it, it's a, it's a, it's, it's easy to read in a lot of ways, but it's a, it's a, it's a tough book kind of to kind of to go through um, because the subject's tough. Um, I think that not that I'm trying to make make the subject light and frilly, but uh, I think the the biography allows us to kind of talk about the people, contextualize where the ideas came from. It's not exculpatory at all, but I think it will allow us to look at um, race in kind of a different way to understand the institutions and the preoccupations of certain people, and some sometimes like personal stuff. You know, one of Voltaire's first first books came up because he was essentially writing a a love letter to uh, Madame de Châtelet, who was a brilliant, brilliant uh, uh, mathematician and his girlfriend at the time. And um, he decided to write this thing called the Treaty of Metaphysics to her um, when they were estranged, not estranged, but she was in Paris and he was kind of, you know, on the run in the, in the country. And if it hadn't been for that, he wouldn't have written this thing, which has, it's just the first time he develops his polygenesis kind of ideas. Really fascinating. So situating these things, I think, will be useful for us, um, you know, people trying to figure out race and to really understand it from this perspective. It's, it's, it'll, I think it'll be pretty accessible. So that's what I'm thinking about. That's what I'm doing, about halfway done. I, I love the idea of that structure. Um, I've all, um, I, one of my favorite, all-time favorite books is Sunil Kilnani's book, Incarnations, which um, – is a history of Indian 50 lives. And he begins with uh, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, and he ends with Dhirubhai Ambani, um, the Indian industrialist and tycoon who died in 2002. Um, so that, uh, uh, those, because there are 50 lives there, and it's not, a, an, it's not an absolutely enormous book. Um, each life story is told in just, you know, three or four pages. Um, so, with only 10, you will go into a lot more depth. But it's a, I think it's a genre that's actually very fun to both write and read. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, good. I <laughs> hope I can finish it this year. Well, good luck with that. And um, as usual, I will put everything into the show notes, um, every, all of the references we've, we've talked to. Um, and uh, thank you so much for um, joining us, Andy. Oh, it's a pleasure talking with you. Thanks again. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash 2 for Have a wonderful week.